Welcome to the latest episode of The Warden Current. My name is Thomas Obermeyer, and today my co-host Nick Van Hollen and I had the great pleasure of sitting down with Kieran Bhattraju, founder and CEO of Arcadia. A Penn undergrad, Kieran founded Arcadia in 2014 after previously founding an energy efficiency company. We discussed the benefits of community solar, why data and energy is not getting enough attention, and what makes Arcadia's platform unique. You'll also learn what Stripe and Arcadia have in common and what Kieran thinks that the Department of Energy's goal of connecting 5 million households to community solar by 2025 is setting the bar too low. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation as much as we did. And without further ado, let's jump right in. Kieran, thank you so much for joining The Warren Current. We're super excited to have you on. Before we get deep into community solar and what Arcadia does, as a Penn undergrad, could you give us a quick run through of your background from Penn to founding Arcadia and where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, remember my Penn years fondly. I uh, grew up in Eastern Kentucky, so coming to Philly was a big change. I was in the college, so I'm especially like excited to be on a Wharton podcast. This is uh, you know unique for me. After college, I, I came to Washington D.C. I worked on Capitol Hill for a congressman from Louisville, Kentucky. Left. The Hill started uh, an energy efficiency company, um, learned a ton about markets, utilities, you know, the structure of the regulatory environments. Um, and, you know, the idea for Arcadia was originally thinking about this mega trend of decarbonization, unbundling the utility, the traditional utility with distributed cleaner resources. You know, I wanted to build a company that not only sort of accelerated that, but um, really focused on the customer. When you think about energy, it, it really is more about, and you talk to folks in energy, they love talking about the system. They don't necessarily talk that often about the end user and the customer and what it means to them in their lives. And so I really wanted to make the experience better, uh, the home energy experience, obviously offer them cleaner energy and new options. But, you know, I don't think, I think utilities have sort of been asleep at the wheel at the fact that they have hundreds of millions of captured customers and are providing a subpar experience. And so we've built a ton of tools to deliver uh, a better, unique home energy experience. And I think we're, we're just getting started. Perfect. Thanks, Kieran. You mentioned the mega trend of disaggregation of utilities. You talked about experience, which I think we have some specific questions we want to get into in a bit. One of the topics we were hoping you could talk about is explain the evolution of community solar, knowing that that was kind of one of the sweet spots that Arcadia found early on. Can you explain just at a high level what community solar is, how it works, what types of customers can use it? Yeah, absolutely. So to step back, when people think about solar, they think about solar on a roof, right? You know, that's been Tesla Sunrun sort of the residential offering to date. And the fact is not everyone has the right roof for solar. You may not own a roof. You may live in an apartment. You may have trees overhead. You may have a flat roof. There's tons of reasons that people fall out of the funnel. And so when you think of solar, there's, there's sort of super small scale residential. There's sort of larger commercial installations. Then there's huge, what are called utility scale. Community solar is you know, smaller. It's anywhere from 100 kW to sometimes 10 megawatts, but it's distribution sited. 
But the beauty of it is you can uh, do what's called virtual net metering. So you can basically offset the retail rate for power for anyone that pays a power bill, right? And so the promise of community solar is to actually open cheaper, cleaner energy to the masses, to you know the, the people that will never be able to do rooftop solar. It's a relatively new market. Uh, it started, you know, maybe a decade ago being called community solar gardens. You had people who would come together, build a project and, uh, in like Vermont and Colorado, and it's just exploded, right? I mean, there's uh, not only decarbonization, but, you know, an equity component, right? Who actually has access to these products? Is it just rich people who own homes with the right roof or can it be everyone? And so I think that combined with the declining cost curve of solar generally, the economics of building sort of larger distribution sited facilities, the resilience factor that gets built into that. You're not just backing up a single home, you're backing up the whole neighborhood. And then, you know, frankly, the demand, like culturally people want more and more people every year want cleaner energy. Uh, and when you build a community solar project and you can offset the retail rate, we're able to offer guaranteed savings, right? From that project. And so it's a really unique offering. It's really exploded in the last few years, but uh, it, is, it is still very new. Uh, it's not everywhere in the U.S. yet. Picking up on that last point, is it not everywhere in the U.S. because it's new or because of the regulatory environment in each of these respective st states? And are there any other headwinds that community solar is facing? Yeah, like almost every energy product, period, um, you know, you have to walk through a maze of regulatory regimes and rules. And so the idea with community solar is a third-party developer can actually build a project interconnected to the grid to then offset, uh, you know, residential or commercial power bills, right? And uh, a public service commission or state legislature needs to actually pass legislation to, in fact, in a way, unbundle the traditional monopoly and allow a third-party developer to do that. And it sounds like your listeners might be familiar with the fact that the U.S. actually has some very different energy regimes. There's Texas, which is sort of completely competitive, but we have competitive energy markets where the utility just owns wires. And then you have markets that are sort of fully vertically integrated. I think what's really unique about community solar and the way it's grown is it actually um, straddles all the different types of markets where the legislation has actually passed. But short answer to your question is, yeah, I mean, we are actively talking to public service commissioners, state legislatures, and even here in D.C. on Capitol Hill about potentially federal action, but, uh, you know, to continually try to open up new markets to this product. That's great. Yeah. One of the one of the things we're tracking was uh, the DOE announcement in October that was targeting a massive expansion in community solar. What I'm seeing here from the press release is in the U.S. today, community solar powers about 6,000 households and the DOE's new target is getting that to 5 million homes by 2025. Uh, which is a pretty, pretty significant increase. And then expecting that through that process, they can create a billion dollars in cost savings for customers. And then you also mentioned some of the other work um, you're doing on Capitol Hill and their components in the, at least the latest draft of the Build Back Better plan that have facets that should reduce costs for solar manufacturing, potentially also reduce costs on the residential side, which could have a different kind of impact on community solar. But I guess, what is the progress from the legislative and policy standpoint look like from Arcadia's perspective? Have, have you guys been seeing that and uh, planning on scaling up 
kind of in existing states where you are, what, what do those tailwinds look like? Yeah, it was, a, it was an amazing announcement. Um, you know, I think it's recognition that community solar can and should be bigger than rooftop solar in America, right? Not everyone should put a power plant on their roof. You know, we do have lots of distribution grids that were built and should be utilized. And, you know, I think DOE is actually setting kind of a low bar. When you think about the fact that three-fourths of Americans maybe want solar, you probably can't get it and can't put the power plant on their roof. Community solar is an amazing product. And the billion dollars in cost savings is very real, right? The bigger you build these projects, the cheaper they get. You know, the sun is your fuel and it's free. So you can offset, uh, you know, the local utility price. But, you know, that billion in cost savings doesn't even um, account for the resiliency factor and sort of what you're doing to benefit the distribution grid broadly. So they're amazing announcements. I I would say, like, there's incredible tailwinds broadly behind decarbonization. We need a lot of different things to get there. Direct payments rather than tax equity, which makes it really complicated to structure a lot of solar deals, will be helpful you know, one of the things that I don't think gets talked about enough is data in energy. And so we can talk about all these, you know, pronouncements and what's happening in Build Back Better, what I think Congress will pass. It's all great. Um, but we still fundamentally have sort of a data and data quality issue around energy in the U.S. And when you think about the millions of new energy producers, load shifting products or energy consumers that are going onto this grid, in order to actually properly manage it, you need sort of pretty high fidelity data of what's happening at the meter, what's happening at the ISO level, the carbon on the grid. And so those are things that I think are not getting as much attention. Like, yes, we should find ways to finance these projects, make it simpler. We should find better, faster ways to permit them and interconnect them. But data will ultimately be the way we actually operate the grid better. I think that's sort of the next step that either Congress or even you know, state legislatures are looking at. Before we jump into Arcadia specifically, you were talking about earlier to kind of whom community solar is attractive to. One component that falls short in some conversations, especially when it goes to climate tech, is the environmental justice component. A lot of, especially on the residential side, a lot of the products that are coming out are simply cost prohibitive for, for some households. It seems like community solar should fairly easily bridge that gap because it's accessible to almost anyone. Does that play a role in the industry? And then also, if you want to talk to Arcadia specifically. Yeah. So there are a couple of things there. Um, Let me start with the product and get back to why I think it's fundamentally better and more equitable. So we, as Arcadia, we build software to actually manage assets. We don't build, we don't own assets, but we work with, you know, all the major developers that are out there buying land, you know, permitting, interconnecting, and actually installing panels and financing them. When we strike a deal with the developer, we say, hey, we will, we will manage this project. We'll go find offtake, but you have to make sure that we can resell cheaper than the utility power for the next 20, 25 years. And so that is like an extremely unique thing to say in energy is that I know that my portfolio of assets five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years from now, that I can sell them at five, 10, 15% cheaper than whatever the utility price is. Nobody in wholesale markets or any energy aggregator, anyone can actually lay claim to that. I actually think we're aggregating the best energy on US power markets because of that. 
Uh, and they're willing to take that risk and sign those deals with us because they know they either are making a bet that utility prices will go up over time, or they know that, that there's no fuel cost. And even if prices stay flat or even go down a little bit at the utility, that it's still uh, you know in the black in the, for the project. So with that being said, for the customer, what's the value prop? It's no contract, no credit check, cheaper than the utility power. And we actually get some pushback sometimes that it's a little too good to be true because most energy products are like contracts, 750 FICO, you got to put a power plant on your roof and someone has to come check it out and you got to do the construction project. And so for all those reasons, like, you know, it is the simplest way to decarbonize your home. It is also the most equitable and accessible product because mostly rooftop solar, even with the zero down offers and the PPA offers, which are amazing, still requires, you know, pretty hefty credit scores, which, you know, can very be a very regressive way to, um, you know, find the right community to sell to. So we've been able to strip all that away. We look at data, your on-time payment history of your power bill, right? We're not looking at your credit score, but you have the ability to move in and out. We know based on our data that customers move on average every five and a half years. And that's actually been skewed a bit uh, lower, I should say, through COVID, more people moving. Um, and so, you know, fundamentally, I actually think community solar is a safer product for the finance community than rooftop because the offtake is fungible, right? Like if you move, I can slide someone else in. So there's always offtake. Um, all that being said, when you think about the transition we're going through, I think energy sort of uniquely has left a lot of communities behind. We have a, a pretty torrid history in America of like polluting in certain communities, putting power plants only in certain communities. Um, and obviously in the last 20 years of clean energy or rooftop solar has really been accessible to the rich for being blunt, like that's what it is. And so yeah, this is an incredible product because it, it creates resilience on the grid, not just your home, the whole neighborhood. It's cheaper. So everyone's sort of, you know, saving in the benefits, the barriers to entry are much lower. So as long as you pay a power bill, you can access it. And that has nothing to do with credit scores, race, or your zip code. Yeah. The piece Kieran, I think, as you mentioned, between the cost and some of the legislative action on the residential side, that's trying to bring down some of those barriers for those who maybe do still want residential solar, but it's cost prohibitive combined with this shift towards community solar, other kind of distributed energy as a service platforms that also overcome the barriers is super, super exciting. And I think one of the other things we were going to start to transition to builds on one of the points you made before around data. So maybe we can start to do that. And we jumped right into the community solar aspect of Arcadia. I know there are a lot of other things that, that you guys have worked on and are working on. And it sounds like one of those things is getting more involved in all of the other kind of components that make up that relationship between, I guess, the traditional relationship between a utility and a customer, but really all of the different pieces that make up the electric services that, that customers use. Can you talk about kind of the, the broader suite of products and services Arcadia sells, where data maybe fits into that currently and, and looking forward? Yeah, absolutely. So original idea of the company was we're going to build this platform and create these tools and new energy companies are going to come use it and build all sorts of new experiences. And that was six and a half, seven years ago. And there was no model three. There were no smart thermostats. We were just way too early for the market. So we said, okay, we're going to go direct to consumer package this ourselves and uh, create that better home energy experience. That's what we've been doing the last 
you know, last six years. And then more recently, we've been having so much inbound from the new energy companies that do exist now, the EV companies, the, the thermostat companies, et cetera, saying, hey, we, we need energy data. We would like to do a single bill. What are the rates and tariffs in these utilities? Um, you know, how do I connect my customers to cleaner energy? And so we've now productized and exposed uh, a lot of these tools as APIs for solar storage EV. Uh, frankly, folks, we, we didn't even think like uh, banks. And, and that's incredibly interesting to see. And I think the analogy I would make is when you think about a business like Robinhood, they've been able to expand the pool of people accessing the markets by just making a, a really incredible brokerage experience that's easy and mobile accessible. But they couldn't do that without Plaid, which is the tool that actually connects that app to your bank account. And Plaid is sort of in the background. And another example is like DoorDash needs Twilio, right? To be able to send communications to your Dasher, to you, to let you know when your food's going. And I say that because like those API layers, Twilio for programmatic communications, Plaid for accessing bank accounts, like those platforms can enable just a massive amount of innovation, right? Um, in ways that people haven't thought about before. So when we think about energy data, you know, it it's so siloed, like, you know, even with our community solar product, we can now know, like, do you need six kilowatts of solar or do you need 12? Cause you have a hot tub and an EV. Um, and we can, we can size that correctly. If you have, if you're charging your EV, are you doing it at the right times of day for the cheapest charge? Or do you want the least carbon intensive charge based on what's happening on the grid? Uh, and you need data to do that. If I'm getting a backup generator storage, can I finance that through maybe a flat bill? There's all sorts of things you can do if the traditional utility was sort of opened and unlocked. And I think, um, you know, the utilities are obviously like a very necessary part of the transition, um, but I think they just need to give up on the customer. Like they just haven't done anything other than bill a customer and they've created a resilient grid, but their relationship with the customer is literally a monthly bill. It goes no deeper. I'm sure like if you've ever looked at your power bill, it's impossible to understand. And I think that's by design, right? They're trying to put customers to sleep. And I think the opportunity for all the new energy companies, all the electrification companies is to take over that customer relationship, create meaningful experiences that help customers save money and, and you know, lower their footprint. That plaid Robinhood example was really, really powerful for me in thinking about it. Can you explain a little bit more about how Arcadia fills into that space? So is it that you uh, have you know, integration with existing systems and have permissions to get that data feed? I guess, what does that handshake look like? Yeah, I would say it's more similar. It's actually more similar to plaid. Um, so it's permission-based access from the customer. So there's no API you can pull off the shelf to access Florida Power and Light, right? It does not exist. I wish it did. But what we built is sort of a one-to-many solution. So let's say you are an electrification business of some sort and you want uh, residential data. You would come to us, tap our API, and you know, give the customer effectively a front-end component, similar to Plaid, if you've gone through that flow, where you know for Florida Power and Light, your online credentials to access your account. And then we pull a bunch of rich data out of the account with the customer's permission. 
So it's, it's sort of permissionless from the utilities perspective. It's also really light touch. Like we don't have to, like, there's no like formal integration with the utility, but it's nationwide. We have coverage with about 80% of the U S every investor owned utility in the U S Texas. You know, I'll give you an example. Like we talked to an EV company recently and we haven't launched this yet. So I'm going to keep the name under wraps, but you know, they were talking to multiple utilities, trying to get data and just running up against a brick wall. And then they came to us and said, oh, like, this is simple. Here's a, an SDK that our software engineers can pull and then build into our, our app. And it can be nationwide. One-to-many solution, I think, is what uh, people want. And this, this market's really complex. That's the other thing is I think we're trying to simplify um, the ability to innovate because it is the regulatory complexity, the way data is actually structured, even within utility to utility is so radically different. We've been able to normalize that. I, I think, you know, Stripe made it incredibly simple to manage payments online. You know, that's sort of a North stars. How do we make it as simple as possible for anyone to focus on whatever app or innovation they're working on, but to pull the data that they need. Staying on your platform, but thinking about it from the residential customer experience and new customers, can you walk us through what that onboarding process for them would look like? And then also maybe what is their primary driver for joining Arcadia? Is it they want access to solar? Is it primarily it's cheaper? Do they want their own data insights? What, what do you hear is the primary driver? Yeah. So in our direct to consumer business, we have effectively two products. If you're in a community solar state, it's cheaper, cleaner energy. If you're not, we sell what are called renewable energy certificates. These are sort of one-to-one match to a clean energy project. So you can sort of claim the electrons. That's a premium product. So you're paying a little more to purchase these and retire them. So you can take ownership. Uh, the community solar is straight savings, right? So the signup's actually really simple. We're, we're actually launching some really interesting innovations too, but it's, you know, what I just described, you're, you're connecting to your local utility account. We have a new, in some markets, the ability to just take a picture of your bill and that's it. You can choose the payment method to pay your bill through credit card. Very few utilities in the U S actually allow you to pay by credit card without a huge fee. And we've stripped that fee. So we give you payment options and then you're done. So it becomes a very seamless monthly process. We, we sort of surface for you, you know, your impact if you're buying renewable certificates, the production of your solar farm on community solar, your savings in the month, your lifetime savings, what slice of the project you own, where some of the other people that are on this project live. We try to make it a really immersive experience. And, you know, you asked about the value props. There's obviously the biggest segment that is, you know, open to it for savings, but the halo is cleaner energy, right? Broadly, people who want to access cleaner energy. Some people want the data insights, but I got to be honest with you, like the learning curve for folks to actually like want and understand data is still pretty, pretty steep in energy. Um, most people don't know what a kilowatt hour is, right? But we, we surface that. And I think engagement is important over the long haul. But right now people understand the bill and they understand what they're paying what they were paying versus what they might be paying and their impact, right? They want to see clean electrons versus dirty. So that sounds super easy and straightforward. Thinking about 2021 for Arcadia and then also what's next. It's been a super exciting year for you guys. You just closed in August series D uh, raised hundred million. So big congrats on that. 
You also announced acquisition of iSolar. You've also acquired Real Simple Energy and NanoGrid. Let's talk about your, your Series D first and then look at maybe one or two of the acquisitions. What is the goal with that capital? What do you guys want to use that for over the next 12 to 24 months? Yeah, I mean, we we're in a period of you know, scaling the business. And so, you know, I talked a lot about the direct to consumer business, but the building out the R and D for the platform, like we have a roadmap of hundreds of APIs that can be built based on the data from clean energy sources, energy markets, utilities. So there's a lot, there's a lot to build, right? There's a lot to innovate on in energy broadly right now. And so it's an exciting time. I mean, you know, the acquisitions are, um, you know, opportunistic, Oftentimes it's pulling the product roadmap forward. It's hiring a great team. In the case of iSolar, it's a partner we've been working with that gets us into more low and moderate income communities and small business acquisition. That's really meaningful for community solar, like we talked about. So yeah, so it's an exciting time. It's an exciting time to be a climate tech company because uh, you know I've been doing this for more than a decade across two companies and there are a lot more investors who are excited about investing behind these companies now. Do you see this as a bubble right now? Like, do you, with all the money that's flowing in, is there a risk of kind of a repeat of history? Um, yes and no. The yes would be like, I think it's already sort of popped around the SPACs where the public markets aren't actually taking like a massively long view. Yep. They're still, they're still playing to quarters. And I think that kind of got exposed. The no would be, it feels like there's no... There, there's culturally, we're in a place where a sort of everyone sort of accepts that we need to decarbonize and we have a climate problem. I don't think that was true 10, 20 years ago and sort of clean tech 1.0. And you have, you have finance, but also the fortune 1000 and, and you have talent. And so bubbles have to happen in like very specific parts of the economy. But when you have like people, finance, government, culture, like, you know, it is, it is just a mega trend is what it is. And there are actual businesses making money. So I guess that's the third thing. There are nice margin profiles to be made. There are the right regulatory structures for some of the stuff, but I still think um, there's a little bit too much enthusiasm in the public markets around some of these SPACs that uh, you're seeing getting pulled back a little bit. But anyway, awesome. the valuations are exciting. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that makes sense. And is in our conversations that Nick and I are having amongst classmates and throughout the podcast and also just like in our own recruiting process, very much we're hearing. It's just an exciting time to be in this space. One other recent development for Arcadia is the Arcadia Source, your new, I don't know if you want to call it a publication or it's not a blog, but it's more than that. But what's the idea behind that? Yeah, the idea is to, this idea of electrification is still very new and we want to we want to create a place where it's not just a blog of us saying things to people, but we can bring our community, our customers, our partners uh, to talk about, you know, the different things they're facing, the different challenges, solutions. You know, I don't think there are enough actual like media outlets for the transition we're in and, and focusing on the transition. So, you know, hopefully we can play a meaningful role there. And I think we've got a pretty strong ecosystem and some, some, some good stuff coming out of there soon. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, the way you describe the platform and how that changes the interaction seems like simplifying something that is ultimately pretty complex. And even though you're simplifying at the end of the day, like being able to, being able to talk about it and have a publication for that makes a lot of sense. So that's cool. I'm going to check it out. 
I think as Thomas mentioned, we're very much feeling like there are so many cool things going on out there. So many interesting companies to try to bring onto the podcast and people to talk with. A couple of questions in terms of asking for your advice for people in our shoes. The first is for people who might be interested in founding a company, uh, maybe kind of specifically more of a software company focused on the climate tech space. What types of advice uh, would you have for those aspiring entrepreneurs? Yeah, I mean, the first thing is, you know, there's never been a better time to start uh, a company in the space. I mean, especially when it comes to funding, you know, there, there are so many seed pre-seed funds interested in the space, you know, the climate tech too is so broad, right? Like we're talking about energy, Arcadia is broadly like an energy company uh, or focused in the energy market, but whether it's agriculture, the built environment, there's so many ways to play transportation, right? Aviation, there's so many ways to play to, to with the ultimate goal of like limiting our carbon emissions for the future. And I think some of the, you know, sort of broadly, like, uh, you know, just getting started, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, one of the most difficult things about um, starting a business is you can pour over a business plan forever and think about an idea, but, um, you know, getting started, trying to talk to customers, maybe building an MVP, those are the most important things. Maybe on that, if I can ask one follow-up question before we keep going. Um, a lot of times you hear from founders that you need that willingness to fail or make mistakes and learn from that in your time in uh, scaling up Arcadia. Has there been a time that you failed or made a big mistake that obviously you're doing very well, but so that in retrospect, you're thankful for making that you took a lot away from? Yeah, there's hundreds, right? Like that is, it's almost like an impossible, there's no like major uh, thing I can, I can think of right now. I, I would say like, um, if you're going to start a company, yes, you need to have very thick skin. You're going to be told no a lot. You're going to be told, you know, you're going to, you're going to fail a lot. Customers are not going to like your product. They might attrite. You know, I think, I guess one example um, that comes to mind is, you know, we had a prepaid solar product that I loved. You could literally live in Tennessee and quote unquote buy panels that are somewhere else and get savings from those panels. So it was sort of a, we're breaking the regulatory barriers and using our payment system to do. Uh, customers didn't like it. I thought it was brilliant. Um, and, you know, I think those are the, those are the things you have to go through. It's like, um, you know, figuring out like what is actually resonating in the market, what do customers actually want, you know, what's actually a scalable business. Um, so having a thick skin is maybe the most important thing and being resilient. Cool. Yeah. That's a, that is a cool idea. I, I feel like you're very ahead of your time with that, <laughs> that concept. Um, so the, what about advice for maybe the, the more risk adverse of us, which at least as of now, Thomas and I don't have any brilliant startup ideas. So we probably fit into this category, um, MBA students or grad students who are interested in pursuing careers in the climate tech industry. I think Arcadia is a great example of the types of companies that a lot of us are coming out of school interested in, you know, potentially working for, or, or working alongside, uh, what types of, you know, skills are you looking for in those students? What types of advice generally would you have in terms of types of opportunities to pursue? Yeah, I'll say one thing, like, I think we pattern match a little too heavily to the person who just like came right out of school, had a brilliant idea and started a company like that doesn't happen that often people have domain knowledge, right? And so going and getting that 
wherever it may be, big company, medium-sized company, even a growth stage company, go understand a space to then go find the problems to go build the solution is actually the more relevant pattern to match, not the, I'm Mark Zuckerberg and I you know, started a company in my dorm room type thing. Uh, it just, it, it doesn't happen that often. So I think the advice I would give is like, if you're interested generally in a space like agriculture, uh, EVs, go find the hottest companies doing the most innovative work and go work there because you will learn so much more. You'll learn more about the problems facing those companies to think about what are the actual solutions I could maybe go build if I wanted to start uh, a company. And I think that's you know hugely important, like getting that experience, truly understanding a space. You know, I would say the best founders are domain, absolute domain experts. Um, and so you're just not going to get that in a classroom. You're, you're going to get it working at a, at a company. And then generally also going somewhere that uh, has a vision. I think there are a lot of big companies that are, you know, chasing quarters and maybe not investing in R&D as heavily. Um, and, you know, I would just advise people to like really go find the ambitious visionary companies to go work for because then you're going you're gonna to learn more and um, probably be exposed to more um, as well. Awesome. That's super helpful. Kieran, this has been a treat. I know I can speak for Nick and I. We've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for joining the Wharton Current and hope to talk to you soon. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode as much as we did. Stay tuned for new episodes and connect with the Wharton Current on Twitter and Instagram for all up-to-date information and background on all of our co-hosts. 